Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. You're listening to the Wijha Initiative podcast. These podcast episodes are recordings of our past events that we hold in person on a weekly basis. We hope that by listening to the podcast, you'll be inspired to join us at an event. To keep up with our work, please follow us on Instagram. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een Allahumma allimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima allamtana wa zidna ilman wa amalan ya Rabbil Alameen amma ba'd So the series that we want to start today insha'Allah and we aim to run it for about about 10 weeks 9 to 10 weeks until Ramadan basically is we want to explore some cognitive distortions that can affect our spirituality. So these are psychological phenomena that do impact our ability to, you know, grow spiritually. And I think that's been, unfortunately, for a lot of people, a disconnect where they treat the spiritual as almost completely independent from the psychological. And as a result, they wonder why they can't grow spiritually. They're, they're trying everything to grow spiritually, not recognizing that actually there might be some psychological barrier or up obstacle that's holding them back and preventing them from uh, being receptive to spiritual, um, spiritual messages. So, I want to begin first by kind of exploring one chapter of the Qur'an uh, and then talking a little bit about the idea of cognitive dis distortions, inshallah. The Qur'an, there is a chapter towards the end uh, that many of you may be familiar with, you may have memorized, you may recognize when you hear it. It's the chapter, وَالْضُحَى وَالْضُحَى وَالْلَيْلِ إِذَا سَجَى this is a chapter that is really profound uh, in its approach to comforting the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. peace and blessings be upon him. So the, the, the chapter begins with two verses. وَالْضُحَى وَالْلَيْلِ إِذَا سَجَى The first verse is referring to the, the early morning you know, brightness, the break of dawn. وَالْلَيْلِ إِذَا سَجَى and then the second verse refers to the night when it kind of envelopes the sky and darkness enshrouds the world. So you have these two opposites, these two contrasting ideas. The brightness of the morning and the darkness of the, of the night. And when we reflect on what that could be referring to and what the symbolizing um, of these verses is, we start to realize that this is very apt. This chapter was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, at a point when revelation had kind of paused for some time. Those of you who may have studied this chapter before will be aware of this. That initially there was revelation of a chapter that's, you know, two, three chapters later. That's the very beginning of revelation that the Prophet Muhammad received. Peace and blessings be upon him. After receiving revelation, what would you expect that the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ would receive? He receives the first revelation, you would expect that, okay, 
This is the beginning of revelation. Now it's just going to be, you know, revelation after revelation after revelation. Interestingly, revelation pauses. It pauses. And there's, you know, differences of opinion as to how long. Um, but, you know, the majority opinion would be that it was for a few months, two to three months. There was no revelation. And interestingly, in that time, because you have to imagine, like, what, 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 was, what, what was going in pe through, through people's minds. The Prophet ﷺ first comes out, he's preaching this new religion, Islam, to people. He's telling them that I'm receiving revelation from God, I have a special connection to Him, and He has a message that He wants me to convey to you. And they're all like, you know, they're all taken aback and like, okay, this is new, this is different. Let's see, let's see where he goes with this. And then for two months, nothing. How do you think that would make the Prophet ﷺ feel? Any ideas here? Like, what, just picture yourself in that. You just went out on a limb, you told everybody you're the Prophet of God, and that you have revelation coming to you, and you want to convey, you know, convey a message to them, and they're like, okay, okay, fine, if you say so, we'll see. And then every day they're coming to him, Oh Muhammad, where's the message? I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I have nothing for you. How do you feel? Abandoned. Abandoned. Such an excellent word. I love that because the, the verse going forward speaks about this. And that's actually what some of the people around him, those who did not believe in his message, that's what they accused him of. They came to him and they said, Oh Muhammad, your Lord's your Lord, you know the one that you're claiming is your Lord? He's abandoned you. He gave you a little bit of a message and that's it. Now he's giving you nothing. And subhanAllah. When finally Allah revealed something to the Prophet ﷺ, it was this chapter. That the early morning, you know, brightness, the, the light that appears at the break of dawn. And the next verse talks about the night when it enshrouds the skies with darkness. What do you think that's a, a reference to? One reference I think that's commonly understood here is, there's mention of a night, a long night. And we know that after every long night comes, the break of dawn. In the winter, even as long as the night is, Right? It starts at what? Like 5 p.m. And it runs all the way to like 6 a.m., almost 7, you know? We're talking around 6.30 a.m. That's more than 12 hours. As long as that night is, eventually the morning comes. After all that darkness, ultimately there's light. And this could be understood as a period when there was no revelation, a long period where the Prophet Muhammad's wondering, where's revelation? Eventually, revelation comes. Another way to think about this is, if we, if we understand day and night, you know when you say, uh, I was working day and night. You ever heard that expression? I was working day and night. What does that mean? Non-stop. Non-stop. It doesn't mean like, in the, in the day I worked a little bit, in the nighttime I worked. It's like almost like this perpetual, perpetual working that I was engaged in, right? Day and night. Or east to west. East to, the east and the west. When you say God is the Lord of the east and the west, what about in between? It's like it's understood. Yeah, in between as well. So it's this kind of perpetualness from east to west, everything. 
Some have said that this describes the Prophet Muhammad <laughs> waiting for revelation. That in the morning he's looking towards the heavens, maybe revelation will come now, and nothing. In the evening he's sitting there at nighttime waiting for revelation, and nothing. And there's something to, to pause for a moment for us here. It's a point that we want to reflect on. Doesn't that kind of happen to us sometimes when we call out to God? When we make dua to Allah? Right? We ask Him, we put our hands up and we ask for something. And you'll even get people that will come to you and say, it seems like your, your Lord has abandoned you Muslims today. You're asking for help, you're not receiving that help. Do you understand? Muslims are making dua. And one has to begin to wonder, why, why would Allah do that? Why would God do that? Why would He leave the believers without dua? Without accept, or appear, you know, apparently accepting the dua? And with the Prophet Muhammad one thing to understand is that the people accused him of being abandoned. And sometimes we can feel that way too. The beauty is in the third and the fourth verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comforts the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Your Lord has not abandoned you, and He does not detest you. Because that happens. When you're calling out, you're calling out, you're asking God and you're seeking His help, and you're not seeing it. One easy thought that comes to mind, just very naturally, is maybe He's abandoned me. Or number two, maybe he doesn't like me any, anymore. Maybe I've done something that's really upset him, and as a result, he doesn't like me. I've had many conversations with Muslims who felt that way, that God hates me. And, you know, oftentimes it's because of something they've done, and they're now convinced that God would not ever love them. Right? In this verse, Allah Ta'ala tells the Prophet Muhammad, your Lord has not abandoned you. And he does not dislike you. Um, so, I want to I wanna reflect on that point for a bit. Because I think it's really relevant to our times right now. The idea that we make dua, we, we ask from God and we don't seem to see the acceptance of that dua. Then the question would be like, when I'm making so much dua, why is it not being Why would God do that? Why would He let a people suffer? Why would He let a people go through life without their needs being fulfilled. The scholars talk about why this could be the case. And one is, it, it, it really induces within us a state of desperation and vulnerability. And that is really the essence of dua. That we don't ask for dua from a place of self-sufficiency. That's why we're taught how many of you have any, heard of any etiquettes of dua? Some of the etiquettes of when you supplicate. Can anyone share any of the etiquettes? Yeah. Yeah, you start, so the wording specifically, you start with the praise of Allah followed by the salawat and blessings upon the Prophet. Sallallahu yeah. You do wudu, so you're in a state of purity, yeah. Facing the qibla, sure. Anything? Humility. Humility, describe what that looks like. Like uh, not praying out of anger or um, rebelliousness, but rather out of need. Okay, yeah, desperation, sure. 
And then how do we show that in our, in our, in our physical state? Yeah. We put our hands out. We put our hands out. Which is so fascinating because you don't technically need to do that. Right? Little kids, you know, if you ever seen little kids when they see you doing that, they're like, are you waiting for something? Like, you know? Like, should I put something in your hands? Like, why do you have your hands up? Are you just waiting for something from the sky to drop into your hand? And that's not the case. That's not what anybody, any one of us who makes dua expects, is that by the time I put my hands down, I'll have the newest iPhone or something. That's not how it works. We understand that the reason we put our hands up is to express our impoverishedness before God. That we are faqir. The Arabic word is fuqara ilallah. Ya ayyuhan nas, antumul fuqara ilallah. Oh people, you are like poor, utterly in need of God. You're utterly in need of God. And so we, we display that, that humility, that meekness, that vulnerability, by putting our hands up. Right? And even one hadith, the Prophet tells us that when you make dua, there should even be this state of almost crying. If you're crying, you're crying. And if you're not, you're almost making, uh, you know, like this expression of crying to display your, 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 your humility before God. That's truly what dua is all about. Sometimes it lacks the spirit though. Do you understand? Sometimes it lacks the spirit. Why? Because we don't feel desperately in need. Duas are most powerful when they come from places of desperation and vulnerability. And there's a, there's a statement by Ibn Atayillah which is very beautiful about this in his hikam. He says, لا يكون تأخر أمد العطاء مع الإلحاح في الدعاء موجبا ليأسك. He says, if in spite of intense dua and supplication, there's a delay in the timing of Allah's gifting you what you asked for, let that not be the cause for your despair. Meaning, if Allah delays in giving to you, don't despair. Why? Because فهو ضمن لك الإجابة. Because he's guaranteed a response for you in what he chooses for you, not in what you choose for yourself. Meaning what? Meaning when there's a delay or, or you don't get what you want, you get something else, we have to remind ourselves that subhanAllah, that's even, that's even better for me. Because I'm getting not what I asked for. I'm getting what God knows is best for me. I ask Him according to what I think is best. But He's giving me according to what He knows is best. And then He goes on to say, And He's giving to you in a time that He knows is best for you, not in a time that you think is best for you. And that happens so often in our lives. Especially as you go and you get older, and you kind of, you know, traverse through certain stages of life, you look back and you go, yeah, I thought it would have been better to have whatever it was at this stage in my life. It was way better that I got it over here. I was actually, I was actually ready to receive that blessing. Do you understand? Because sometimes we receive blessings and we're not ready to handle them. And then a few years pass and we go through some things that shape us and change us. And finally, we're ready to, to receive the blessing in a healthy and mature way. This is hard to internalize. 
as I sit here and say this, it's easy. But to truly internalize this idea that when God gives according to His time and according to what His wisdom and knowledge dictates, not according to what I want, that's best for me. I mean, that's what the dua of istikhara is. That's what the dua of istikhara is. Oh Allah, I ask you for that in which you know to be. Allahumma inni astakhiruka bi'ilmik. Oh Allah, I ask for goodness in accordance to what you know, in accordance to your knowledge. Which is what we're saying, Oh Allah, I'm asking for what I think is best, but ultimately what I want is what is actually best according to your knowledge. You know, it's interesting, I was talking to somebody recently and they were like, they were like, yeah, I made dua, Ya Allah, enable me to go to the best university for me and make that university Waterloo. Wallahi, wallahi, that's what he said. I was like, yeah, I don't know, man. You know, like, you're just kind of like cheating the system a little bit, but you know, um, I don't know. Like, if someone asks, what's the fatwa on that? Is that actually istikhara and stuff? It could be. You know what I mean? Oh Allah, I ask for goodness and please place goodness in that person. <laughs> People do it. People do it, right? And I'm not, I'm not here to judge anybody for that. Um, and so, it's that desperation that we develop over time and that vulnerability that raises our du'as and raises their acceptance before God. And it and really creates within us the true spirit of du'a. Okay? Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then goes on in each of the verses of this chapter chapter Al-Duha, and in different ways, he comforts the Prophet Now, overall, the discussion that we want to have is about trauma, and how trauma can lead to cognitive distortions, and how that can affect our faith. That's ultimately what I want to be speaking about over the coming weeks. But I wanted to start from the Qur'an, and how the Qur'an, subhanAllah, in this chapter, Allah comforts the Prophet Muhammad have you ever thought about all the experiences he's been through? What that would do to somebody psychologically? He lost his father. He never saw his father, Abdullah. I mean, that's already, isn't that not like profound in terms of its impact? Potential negative impact? And then when he was six, he lost his mother. And then he was in the care of his grandfather, lost his grandfather. And then he was in the care of his uncle Abu Talib, lost his uncle Abu Talib. And then he got married to someone and then she passed away. Then he had kids and all of them passed away except one. Do you know what I'm saying? Y'all ever seen a journalist lose all his family, one after the other? May Allah give him strength. SubhanAllah. We think about that and we say, SubhanAllah, how could someone ever bear that? But it's incredible how Allah demonstrated that to us in our very Prophet. Number one, lest we ever think that taking people away from us is a sign that God hates us. He took people away from the best of creation. Number one. Number two, some of the scholars have mentioned that by taking every source of support away from the Prophet Muhammad at every stage, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala turned the Prophet towards Him, towards God and God alone. 
Have you ever relied on something in life only to have it taken away? And you thought that might be the end of you. You felt emotionally broken. But subhanAllah, it actually strengthened you. Because you found a source of support that was that was unbreakable. That's what religion is meant to be in the lives of human beings. It's meant to be a source of, of strength and support that's unbreakable. Why? Because you could take everything away from somebody, you cannot take their faith away from them. Do you get what I'm saying? And that's a very real source of support. That's not, a, it's not an idea. A lot of people would talk about it as an idea. We're currently seeing people go through the most incredible and traumatizing of circumstances and not lose their faith. And in fact, get through it due to their faith. And for many, many people, that's a sign that, wait, faith is not just intellectualizing. It's a very real thing. Some of us have sought, you know, uh, support and strength from everything around us except God. And maybe that's been our biggest mistake. And so sometimes God takes those people away or those things away so that we're left only to rely on Him. And we'll talk about that, inshallah, in the coming weeks, you know, the idea of post-traumatic growth. Right? These types of ideas. Now, I wanted to speak about cognitive distortions. Um, cognitive distortions are really like negative thought patterns that arise um, often due to trauma. Traumatic experiences that people go through. And those negative thought patterns, they really can affect a person's functioning in, in their daily lives. It can often even change the way they look at life from a positive outlook on life to a very pessimistic outlook. And uh, the word trauma, the word trauma, it comes from the Greek root, which means wound. So when a person experiences trauma in their life, they're wounded, right? They're wounded. Now let's pause for a moment and understand. A wound is different from momentary pain. There's a difference there, right? For example, if... I hit my elbow, right, and it hurts, but then I what, I kind of, normally I would walk it off, I just bump my elbow, the funny bone, whatever, it's like, oh, that hurts, and then you kind of walk off, and you're good, that's like momentary pain, like momentarily you're feeling this pain, a wound is different, a wound, it remains, like, you get hit, it gets hurt, there's maybe even some blood that comes out, and then there's a wound left. And that wound remains long after the, the impact. Does that make sense? The difference there? And I want to say because, like, how will you differentiate between stress and trauma? Everyone goes, life is inherently stressful. Life is inherently stressful. Uh, it's, it's difficult by its nature. And the Qur'an told us that too. The Qur'an told us that, and, and really we ought to to receive that lesson from the Qur'an because Allah is the creator of life. He's, he knows best what life is all about. And He tells us that human beings have been created in toil. Fi kabad. Life is going to be challenging. And so stress, if you have stressful situations, a healthy stressful situation, you know, the discomfort, the, the, the pain you might even experience, that ends with the ending of the event. Trauma is when the impact of that stress, of that emotional burden, 
lasts long after the event has ended. Does that make sense? So the event comes to an end, but yet the body or the mind is still reacting to that event. If the body is still behaving and, 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 and acting in relation to what happened sometimes many, many years ago. And um, one of the challenges with trauma is that sometimes we don't even know what it is that caused the trauma. See, when we think about trauma, we often think about life or death situations, right? Major incidents that would cause flashbacks and PTSD. And we speak about these really, really um, grandiose kind of ideas of trauma. We fail to acknowledge that even you know, chronic situations of stress, especially at a young age when you, you don't have the you know, psychological tools to kind of you know, regulate your emotions and your stress, that can have a profound impact on a person's nervous system. And then the impact can be long-term in how a person functions, in how they react to things in life. And they don't even know why they react that way. And that's one of the most painful things. One is you don't understand someone else, that's painful. It's extremely painful when you cannot understand yourself. You're like, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I'm so offended. I don't know why this triggered me. And it's, it's just so confusing. And so, you know, you've ever experienced that moment where you know intellectually what the right way of thinking about something is, but you can't bring yourself to think that way. You're just convinced deep down, not deep down, but just emotionally, like the system's been hijacked within to believe that that person's out there to hurt me or that person was trying to insult me. And everyone around you is like, no, 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 they didn't mean it that way. No, they did. And like, your system refuses to accept. Like, why does that happen? That happens when, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex no longer is able to really function. And now that the system's been hijacked, and the person's just reacting their way through situations in life. And it's, it's difficult because then you're very unpredictable. To yourself. To yourself. People begin to avoid situations because they don't know how they're going to react. You know that friend you can't take anywhere? You become that friend to yourself. I don't, I I, I don't want to take myself there because I might just have a meltdown. Something might trigger me. And this is really interesting. Now, I want to recommend a book here for those of you who have uh, interest in reading on this topic, which I would really encourage. It's, uh, it's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. How many of y'all heard of that book? Bessel van der Kork? All right. Um, the Body Keeps the Score is one of the more profound books on the topic of trauma. Uh, and the author, he has this, 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 uh, this statement he makes. He says, trauma is so ubiquitous, it's so common, that if you haven't noticed it, you likely haven't looked. The impact of things that took place in your life for example, if one day a parent became extremely upset with you for like half an hour, like really upset, that would be, you know, it would hurt. But if it just happened once in like six months, it's likely not going to traumatize you. But if it's a consistent thing, right, then you start to live on edge. And then you begin, that becomes your, your natural way of functioning. 
And even after now, your father may have changed his way, or your mother may have changed her way, or whoever it is, your body's still reacting to that. And to really undo that, there's a lot of work that's required. Which is why often even just talk therapy is not sufficient. There's a lot of work that goes into trying to re, you know, reprogram the nervous system to not just out of nowhere react in a way that you can't predict. Um, so, such trauma, such really, you know, psychologically burdening situations in life can lead us to develop thought patterns, ways of thinking. For example, if someone, imagine as a young child, you see your parents fighting every single day, every single day, every single day, and then they get divorced. The child has to figure out why did this happen? That's, that's what all humans do, by the way. We always ask why. It's built into who we are. The child will ask why. One solution is that, let me blame the parents. Well, they were immature. They had their own emotional struggles. Most children are not in a position to understand that their parents have their own emotional, you know, we could say baggage or emotional struggles. They just see them as what? These are my guardians. These are the people who take care of me. These are the people that are my safe space that I can turn to when I need help. The idea that they'd be, that they'd be going through a lot and stuff, it doesn't occur to most kids. It's only when you, how many of you can attest to that? It's only when you got older, you thought about it, you said, wait, I had emotional struggles. Wait, they had some too. And then that, that kind of leads to a little bit of empathy. And it, it's the beginning of a lot of healing. That, that in itself. Right? But... That young child doesn't, they think, well, my parents know best. They're the ones who've been bringing me up. They've been teaching me. So they know best. So then I must be the, the reason. Maybe if I, maybe if I had just done my work. Because likely when they're fighting in that anger and rage, they'll take a little, bit, a little bit of it out on the child, right? Go to your room. Did you do your homework? And the, you know, the... They're not actually angry at the child. The child just becomes the outlet for their rage and anger. So the child begins, if I'd only done my homework, they wouldn't be divorced. The child internalizes the blame. Very natural. There's one example I'm giving you of a thought pot. Because the child needs to assign blame somehow. In their mind, well, it's not my, it's not my parents because they're, they're adults. They know what they're doing. It must have been me. It must have been me. So the child internalized that. And that idea that they are the source of problems, that they've ruined lives, they've broken apart families, that can really, really scar someone for a long time until they undo that. And just one example of a... And so any situation arises, the person begins to internalize the blame. One of the reasons why we also internalize the blame, even when we're not to blame, is to regain control. Because I can't change other people. So if I blame them, I can't change them. So then I'm kind of left helpless just waiting for them to change. So I'll, I'll take the blame. And I know I can control myself. So, you know, there's hope that things can get better if I could just do better. You ever seen someone do that? Aiming for perfection so that they could solve the problems of the people around them. If only I could just be better. Everyone around me, their life would be better. That's not how it works. 
And this, we're going to go through, inshallah, the different cognitive distortions. The reason why it's so important, I'm going to finish with this. The reason why it's so important is, when you develop a negative thought pattern that's inaccurate, but it's a very natural thing that people develop. It doesn't only affect you in that aspect of your life, that dispute, that stressful situation. No, no, no. That becomes a negative thought pattern that we begin to apply everywhere throughout our life, including our spirituality. Including our spirituality. So imagine, and I, I want to highlight this point. Imagine that same child who internalized blame for the anger and the dispute between his or her parents, right? They internalized the blame and said, if I just do better, then my parents would be happy and we would be a family together again. Imagine that becomes a thought pattern. If I just internalize the blame and take responsibility, I can make things better. Okay. A situation arises in life. Spiritually, they turn to God. Oh Allah, I need help. I need this. And they don't see God's help. Or, or, or a, a, a difficult situation arises in their life. God is sending difficulties my way. Okay, if I could just do better, God will be happy with me. If I could just do better, God will be happy with me. You see how you can start to really see, every, misinterpret every single situation that comes your way? And you can begin to internalize the blood. God must hate me. You know my parents, they hated me too for, for being a bad kid and causing their divorce. Yeah, God must hate me too. And you can start to see how these negative thought patterns will affect a person spiritually as well. Do you understand? So inshallah, every week, I plan on sitting down and going through some of these and how they affect our spirituality. Inshallah. Uh, this is based on a book. For those of you who want to read what I'm talking about, I'm basing this off a book. You can find this book on... Uh, Online, you can uh, download it for free. Um, but you could, I think, you can buy a hardcover copy as well if you want. Uh, it's called "Your Lord Has Not Forsaken You." It was published by Yaqeen Institute, and it's by two, uh, mashallah. Um, I think they're both social workers, um, Dr. Najwa Awad and Dr. Sada Sultan, and they wrote this book on the ten co common cognitive distortions that people can experience and how it can affect their spirituality. And so inshallah, each week I, I plan to take one of them and really have a conversation inshallah about it. So if you want to read that in advance, you can have an idea of what we're going to talk about and then inshallah we can discuss it inshallah. Alright guys? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the understanding of the complexity of the human being and enable us to be people who reflect and make an effort to reconcile all the different you know, forces within us uh, that may be holding us back from growing closer to Him. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een wa alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Jazakumullahu khayra. Thank you so much. أينما تكونوا يأتي بكم الله جميعا إن الله على كل شيء قدير